0: All right. All right. We're ready to go. If you can hear me at the back of the room, would you please raise your hands? Okay. All right. We had the bad stuff, which you remember now, and we'll remember for the rest of your lives. Pusago. Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. We had the bad stuff. Now we're going to have the good stuff. We're going to have the virtues next. That's what we're going to have next. And... You will be surprised to hear I've got a little mnemonic device for this, too. It's not as cool as Soggle, but it's what I could do. (laughs) Widjikut. See, there it is. Those vowels don't signify anything. Just the continents. Continents. Chafwidjikot. If you remember Chafwidjikot, you'll always have the seven cardinal virtues. There they are. Charity, hope, faith. That's the chaff part. Wisdom, justice, courage, temperance. That's the wujicot part. So chaff, wujicot. There you go. Now you can remember them. You don't have to think to yourself, Ew, I can only remember five of the seven. What am I missing? Chaff, wujicot. There they are. Okay. Charity, hope, faith, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. Seven. We usually divide them. I think those first three are the theological virtues charity or love hope and faith and then wisdom justice courage and temperance these are the old Greek virtues Greek and Roman virtues and you remember what I said in the first lecture it's all about love it's all about love and because it's all love we have what philosophers and theologians call the unity of the virtues. If you have any virtue at all, you've got them all. If you're missing one, you have none of them. And you think to yourself, Oh, dokie, I can guarantee you that is crazy because I know people who are courageous but stupid. And, you know... Uh, I know people who are temperate, but cowardly. They don't come as a box set, but they do, they do for the real virtues, for the virtues that you get for yourself by practicing. You know, I'm practicing being stronger. I'm walking today and next week I'm gonna jog a little. For virtues that you get by practicing, you can have one, but not the other ones. But those aren't the real virtues. Because the real virtues all have to do with a relationship and they have to do with love. Real excellence for a human being is marriage to the Lord. And marriage is an all or nothing thing. You can't be a little bit married. You can't be married in some ways but not in other ways. You either are or you aren't. And that's why the real virtues do come as a box set. You can think about it this way. Um, well I'll show you when we get through I'll show you the the um, the whole thing to remember here is that Pelagianism is a heresy so I I love I love the old list I love the old names of the heresies they're so helpful because every heresy shows you what over a long period of time our community has found to be a dead end don't bother going that direction it doesn't work doesn't work that's what it is to call something a heresy we've tried it doesn't work Pelagianism is a heresy Pelagianism says you can acquire a virtue by trying hard and practicing that's a dead end you can't Pelagianism thinks you can and that's why it's a heresy every good thing in your life is a gift remember the four species of pride remember those remember those you can look at your lists if you don't remember. The second species of pride is thinking you have an excellence you really do have and thinking you got it for yourself. Plagianism is a kind of pride. It's that second species of pride. Everything good in your life is a gift. So how do you get these virtues? You get them as a gift because God gives you his grace to put these virtues into you. How does that work? It works just, and your role is just not to reject the gift. That's your contribution. Just don't reject the gift. So here's, here's what it looks like. So suppose you have a baby sitting in a high chair eating out of these little jars of baby food and an emergency arises and you say to me, oh, brother, I'm in real trouble. Could you just feed the baby his peas? I'll be back in about 10 minutes. Just feed the baby his peas. Not that hard, okay? I say, sure, I'd be glad to. Then I face the reality of what's going on here. So I've got the baby in his high chair, and I say, Baby, here's your peas. And the baby says to me, I think, oh, dear. So I say, baby, um, the spoon is a plane, and your mouth is the hanger. Here,
1: baby, here's your peas. Here's a plane. Baby.
0: And the baby says to me, I think, oh, dear. Okay, baby, if you eat these peas, if you eat these peas, I'll give you a cookie. We won't die your mother. I'll give you a cookie. Just eat the peas. And the baby says to you, ah. say, baby, if you don't eat these peas, you're coming out of your high chair. You're going to get nothing. You're going to be hungry. The baby says to you, ah. And now, you know, nice people do not break the teeth of the baby to get the peas in. (laughs) So you're just stuck. You may love this baby. You may feel sure you want to give the baby peas. But if that baby faces you with teeth clenched, you are just stuck. And that's God's situation with respect to us. If you will just stop clamping your teeth shut against God's love and God's grace, he will put the spoonful of grace in and you're on your way. You have begun to eat your grace. That's how it works. That's how it works. And here's the really interesting thing. All the virtues come at once. When you stop clamping your teeth shut and God puts in the mouth, in your mouth, that spoonful of love and grace, all the virtues come at once. Why? Well, they don't come as a finished product. They come in their beginning stage, but they're all there at once. They're all there at once. And why is that? Well, here's the first thing to notice on Christian doctrine, on biblical texts, in that first moment when you stop resisting, What comes in is not only God's love and God's grace, but God himself. The Holy Spirit comes inside. So I don't do popular culture, and my kids censor my movies. They say, oh, you can't take mom to see that. So I see very few movies. (laughs) So what I know about movies, I know because other people talk about them. So I did not see the alien, but maybe you did. And the way that story works in that movie... The way this same story works in endless science fiction is there's a super smart alien who comes inside a human being and takes over the human being and produces fear, loathing, and dread. Well, why not? Why wouldn't it produce fear, loathing, and dread? If you smash the teeth of the psyche, it will produce fear, loathing, and dread in the psyche. And the alien invasion smashes the psyche to come inside. God doesn't do things like that. But if you surrender and love and allow him in, then we don't have the alien story. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what that means is when Christ says in the gospel, I will be with you always, he means it. He doesn't mean you should accept some theological propositions about me which you don't understand and which don't matter to you and then get on with your life. He means... I, the person of Christ, am with you always. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit and Christ and God the Father are one God. When you surrender, the Holy Spirit comes inside, and that is the Spirit of Christ. So that you are never alone. You are never alone. And when the Holy Spirit comes inside, you have all the virtues at once. Love, hope, faith, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. Not because you practice hard to get them, but because the Holy Spirit is with you. You are your beloved and he is yours. And in that relationship, in that marriage, just beginning... Easily broken, but still, in that marriage of you and the Holy Spirit, there is all variety of moral excellence. All variety of moral excellence. Because the heart of all moral excellence is love, and that is what you have then. So let me show you how this is supposed to work. Okay. So here's the three theological virtues. Faith, hope, and charity. And here's a way to think about them. Faith is a hatred of your own evil and a longing for God's goodness. Now, obviously, some beliefs go with this. I mean, you can't long for God's goodness if you don't have any idea of what goodness is, you don't have any beliefs about God's existence and so on. So obviously, beliefs come with this. But you can have all those beliefs and still be Satan. Keep that clearly in mind. Because Satan, ha- Satan believes all the things there are in the creed to believe. Why? Why would Satan believe all of them? Because they're true. And Satan's smart. So he knows which things are true. He believes all the things in the creed too. But guess what? He hates them. The crucial difference is not which items in the creed you believe. The crucial issue is what you love. And the very beginning of life in grace is not to be a perfectly good person. It's to see that you're not a perfectly good person and to wish that you were. There's an old, old proverb, funny saying. It says, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. So do you know what this means? It means if wishing for you, if wishing for something, like wishing for a horse, actually just got you the horse, then all the beggars wandering around on their own two feet would be riding on horseback. And the idea is, it doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work like that. It does for Christians. Wishes are horses and beggars, which is what all of us are, we ride. Faith is longing for God's goodness. You long for it. You will ride on the Holy Spirit. And that goodness will come to you. Not immediately, but it will come to you. As long as you don't get off your wish. So that's what faith is. And it's crucial part. Although, as I say, obviously beliefs have to come with it too. But still, that's the crucial part. And then here's what hope is. It's the acceptance that you will eventually get the thing you're wishing for. It's the acceptance of that. See, think about it this way. Suppose, Suppose you can't sleep at night because you're so worried about your family's finances. The air conditioner has gone out so is the hot water heater. The orthodontist has announced that the kid needs braces. The school fees are due and you just lost your job. And I can't sleep at night. You don't know what to do. And then the phone rings and somebody says to you, you've won the lottery. It's a $100 million jackpot. And the, we're working on the forms. We'll need you to sign some papers. And the money will begin to come to you. It's X number of $1,000 a month. It'll begin to come to you. As soon as all the paperwork is done and that generally takes about 4 months. Well, guess what? For 4 months, the school fees are due, you lost your job, the air conditioner's out, the you know, all the rest of it. But the check is in the mail. And the way you get through those financially really bad times if you know the check is in the mail, that is very different from the way you would have got through them if you hadn't won the lottery. Christianity says to you, You have won the lottery of life. You've won the lottery of life. You're the winner. You've got the winning ticket. The check is in the mail. You don't have it right now, but the check is in the mail. The day will come when you will say, The way the psalmist says, We thought we were dreaming. We thought we were dreaming. We couldn't believe it was this good. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongues were singing that's hope that's hope it's when you look at the mess you still are the mess in the finances of your psyche you look at the mess and instead of saying with sloth I can't it's too hard you say to yourself the check is in the mail we're getting there we're getting there it's not over and then charity the greatest of all the virtues is charity because it's love and there's no moral excellence of any kind without love it's love of God and love of God's goodness so those are our theological virtues, and then we have wisdom, courage, and temperance. Wisdom is understanding what's really good and what isn't. If what you're thinking is, I gotta build, I gotta build my gun collection. I have a really good gun collection. You no, know, this gun collection would really be worth a lot. I mean, when I finish my gun collection, I mean, I bet I could get, I bet I could get the National Rifle Association to auction it, and I bet it would bring in a lot of money. Um, that that 's an absence of of wisdom you 're giving your life to something small. Why would you want to have a life that small when When the movie about Tina Turner came out what 's love got to do with it i didn 't see that one either when that movie came out when the movie came out, it showed her husband Ike Turner beating her up so Everybody was really interested. What would Ike Turner say about this movie? Was it fair? Was it right? So all the media people went to Ike Turner and said, what do you think about that movie? Do you think that was a right depiction of you? No, he said, completely false. I only beat her like that when she made me mad. (laughs) That's being a fool. See what I mean? That's what it is to be a fool. To be so far from being able to understand what's truly good that you think that's an answer that will get you anywhere in the eyes of morally decent people. That's what it is to be a fool, not to have a clue what's really good. So that's wisdom. Encourages the heart to ha- it's having the heart to go after that true good, even in difficult and challenging circumstances. It's willing to put yourself on the line for the good. It's willing to try. And why wouldn't you try? You've already won the lottery ticket of life. So if you already got the lottery, whatever goes wrong when you try for the good can't really hurt you. You already won the lottery. That's why you've got courage, because you know you've already won the lottery. And temperance is being able to discipline yourself so that you're able to act on wisdom and courage. Germans used to have a saying, self-discipline ist alles. Self-discipline is everything. And they're wrong, it isn't. <laughs> but it's worth a lot. And self-discipline can come in two varieties. So suppose after work, the guys come to you and say, you know, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're going home to wifey, Aha, but we're all going to the bars, actually, to tell you the truth, we're going to the strip club, want to come? Now you can think to yourself I am a self-disciplined person with the virtue of temperance and I am going to control myself so as not to come. Well, that's that's good for something but it isn't actually good for very much because here's what we really want you to say. We want you to say I see the face of my wife when I'm not home and she doesn't know where I am and I feel her pain and anxiety when she wonders what I'm doing. I recognize what kind of heartbreak and disappointment she would have if I came home at 2 a.m. and she figured out where I'd been. There is no way I would do that to her. Now we have something worth having in you. That's worth having. That's the real virtue of temperance. And temperance is feeling about God the way the guy in my little story felt about his wife. You are your beloved, and he is yours. And do you want him to look at you that way after you've betrayed what he has given you? I don't think so. And that's what temperance is. That's what temperance is. A sense, of, a sense of the beauty of the Lord and a desire to stay connected to that beauty, to find that more worthwhile than whatever you would get by not having temperance. So you will notice if you're paying attention that Chafwijikot is seven and we just had six. Charity, hope, faith, wisdom, courage, temperance but we didn't have the J and here it is. It's justice. Justice is a matter of loving relations of loving goodness in relations among human beings. It's loving goodness. And one way to understand what it is to love goodness in relation with other beings, other human beings, is to see it expressed in what used to be called the alms deeds and now are called works of mercy. So I am bending the knee to contemporary Catholic usage, and I'm calling them works of mercy, but you know that's a bad title for them, and I'll tell you why. Because when you hear works of mercy, you think you can do them or not do them and it'd be okay either way. But actually, that's not right. These are all part of justice and justice is obligatory. So I'm gonna give you a sense of what the old Catholic intellectual heritage thought of as justice, but I'm gonna call it works of mercy and you shouldn't get confused. Here's what it means to say they are obligatory. And I hope you don't mind my harping on this thing, but I find it helpful and it gives me joy. If you don't do these, your soul is damned to hell forever. Maybe maybe you're fearful and I shouldn't make that joke. Nobody is, is damned to hell forever who doesn't really want to be because forgiveness is free, love is free. All you have to do is stop resisting it and it belongs to you. And the obligatory alms deeds are part of the joy of your being called by God into a kind of life that is beautiful in holiness like God's. So, anyway, just to make sure you understand these are not, well, you can or you don't have to, it doesn't matter. They're obligatory, so here they are. First, there are corporal works of mercy. And you're going to be surprised to discover there's seven of those too. Okay, so here they are: feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the needy—I mean, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, ransom the captive, bury the dead. They're on your sheet too. You don't have to write them down. They're on your yellow sheet. So, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, ransom the captive. We don't really ransom captives anymore. What's the analog of this one? Who's captive in our world? The prisoners. The prisoners. This is being of some use, any use to the prisoners. And then there's burying the dead. So these are all things where when you care for other people, you are giving resources that diminish when you distribute them. So consider consider food and drink for the hungry and the thirsty. Well, that will take some of your money. And money is the kind of small good that diminishes when you distribute it. Or take visiting the sick or visiting prisoners. That will take your time. Time is a resource that's precious also, and it also diminishes when you distribute it. So we are inclined to ask this question, how much have I got to give? I mean, is it 10% of my time, 10% of my money, or would less be okay? I mean, you know, I'm a very busy person, I have a large family, I couldn't possibly, what would be appropriate? And here is the answer given by the great Catholic intellectual heritage. Here's the answer. If you keep for yourself more than is required for your condition in life, you are guilty of theft. That is one stern and severe line. And let me show you, let me show you what this line looks like. When my daughter was little, I got that kind of crazy brain thing that sometimes afflicts young mothers. I thought that what I had to have for my daughter, what I had to have was a canopy bed. I felt that a little girl, a tiny little girl, couldn't grow right without a magical canopy bed. And I longed for a canopy bed. They were $100 at that time in my world. And at that time... We had little children and we were very poor. And my husband said, you're crazy. There is no way we are spending $100 on a canopy bed. And I sadly agreed. And then a check came in the mail for $100. Somebody sent me something for some work of mine I didn't know anybody was paying for. And it was $100. And I said to my husband, canopy bed. <laughs> and he said, oh, all right. And then my neighbor, who had a little girl just the same age as mine, he said to me, do you know the Ethiopians are starving? Have you thought about that? Do you have any idea how many people would be fed in Haiti with your $100? How in the world could you spend that money on something as frivolous as a canopy bed? And I said, oh, you're right. And I sent my
1: precious
0: $100 off to the poor, and I got no canopy bed. And then that jerk went in his basement and he built a canopy bed for his daughter. (laughs) As if those starving Ethiopians didn't need his time. See what I mean? (laughs) Time and money are both resources, and for both of them, you are called not to keep more for yourself You're called not to keep more for yourself than your condition in life requires. Now, that condition in life caveat in there, that's kind of a big loophole. And you do need to focus on it and think about it. So I used to live next door to people who had kids about the same age as mine, and they used to use me as a referee. So I came over one day. The teenage daughter and her father were having a big fight, and I was supposed to referee. And the issue was snow boots. The issue was snow boots. He said... Those girls' snow boots in the mall are expensive. That money can be sent to the poor, and she can wear my galoshes when it's snowy. And she said, I would rather die than go to the high school in your galoshes. <laughs> so I was supposed to referee. And I said to him, you lecture all around the country, don't you? Yes, he said, I do. He was an academic, too. Lecture all around the country. He said, well, do you lecture in your um, sweatshirt and your jeans? He you said, of course not. I lecture in my suit. You say, said, well, how would you feel about lecturing in your jeans and your sweatshirt? He you said, Eleanor, I can't do that. I said, right, and she can't go to the high school in your washes." <laughs> Her condition in life requires snow boots, just as your condition in life requires a suit to lecture in. So there is condition in life. It's a loophole but you do wanna make sure that you're careful with the loophole because pretty soon you're going to be explaining to yourself that you need the hope diamond, you know, (laughs) and and an ostrich leather vest for your condition in life. And then the loophole has wrecked the whole idea. So that's the, that's what justice requires. That's what justice requires. And time and money are comprised, both comprised under this rule, under, the, under these alms deeds. But guess what? Here's a really interesting thing. Besides the corporal works of mercy, there's also spiritual works of mercy, spiritual alms deeds. And you will be surprised to discover there's seven of these too. So here they are, seven spiritual works of mercy, and they trump The corporal works of mercy, that is, they're more important. Sometimes these young guys in religious orders who are educated until they're ready to explode with learning and education say, what we're going to do is we're going to work in a soup kitchen. Think, really? After all that education, why? They say, well, because it's important to serve the poor. But they have forgotten that the spiritual works of mercy also serve the poor. They serve the poor in spirit and the needs of the spirit trump the needs of the body unless of course the body is starving or something and then it works the other way around so Elijah the great prophet Elijah runs out into the desert with a terrible case of depression Lord I want to die he says and at a certain point God sends to him an angel and what the angel says to him is not let me discuss your depression let me talk to you about your spiritual needs the angel says to him here eat this because his body is in need of food and you can't deal with his depression until you feed him first because he's hungry. So sometimes the works of mercy trump the spiritual works of mercy. But unless there's a case like Elijah's where he really does have to be fed before you can talk to him, unless there's a case like that, the spiritual works of mercy trump because the needs of the soul are bigger and more important than the needs of the body. So here they are, instruct the ignorant, counsel the doubtful, comfort the sorrowful, fraternal correction, forgive trespasses, bear with those who trouble us, and pray for others. So I'm gonna take these one by one. Here's what you can do no matter what your condition is. Milton has a very famous poem about his own blindness, his own helplessness. I love Milton and I love his poetry, but the last line of his poem goes like this. He says, they also serve who only stand and wait. And I think, no, no, that is wrong. Love Milton, but that is wrong. Because you're never in a position where all you can do is stand and wait. You can always serve the Lord in a more active way. And why? because praying for others is one of the spiritual almses. So I had a friend who was a Jesuit priest, very, very dear to me. He has now passed away. He was 93 years old. You know, at 93, you're not completely compos mentis. And he was in the hospital with tubes everywhere. I mean, just tubes everywhere. And he was dying, and and he knew it. And they'd filled him full of drugs, so he was sort of wandering in mind a bit also. And I stayed with him every day in that time he was in the hospital. And I heard him every day. He'd forget I was there because he was so out of it. He'd forget I was there. And so he'd pray out loud, which he probably wouldn't have done if he'd remembered I was there. But he prayed nonstop for everybody by name. And I don't remember what he prayed for the other guys, but I will never forget what he prayed for me. He said, now, Jesus, now, Jesus, you know, she's got another book in her, but you're going to have to help her. You're going to have to work with her. So she gets that book done. And that book comes out in November. I just want you to know. <laughs> so you can be in the hospital wandering in mind and hooked up to tubes and dying and you can still serve the Lord because you can still pray for everybody. Okay. Hmm? <laughs> well, you can ask in another time. I don't know what to do. Okay. So, so that's, that's one thing you can always do. And then here's the idea... You are called, what's true humility? Accepting every good in yourself as gift and using it to give back. And how do you give back? By helping others to be the best they can be. And this is how you can help others be the best they can be. You can instruct the ignorant. I say to Sister Mary Kathleen, where is the ladies' room? And she says, oh, right over there. Now, she has instructed the ignorant, and that is a spiritual work of mercy. (laughs) There is no one who cannot instruct the ignorant. And that's a work of mercy when you do. Then you can counsel the doubtful. You can't always give a beautiful argument for the existence of God, but you can at least say this. You can say, well, all I can tell you is I believe in God and he's a source of joy to me. Now you have counseled the doubtful. Or you can comfort the sorrowful. Sometimes you don't know what to say. You have no idea what to say. Well, maybe you don't say anything if you don't know what to say. Just sit there. Your presence is a comfort to the sorrowful too. So whatever your own condition in life or your own background, you are always in a position to instruct the ignorant counsel the doubtful, and comfort the sorrowful. And then there's this one. Bearing with those who trouble us. This is a matter of putting up with others while they are not yet the best they can be. These are helping others to be the best they can be. This one is putting up with others when they're not there yet. They're not the best they can be. So one time I had a friend very dear to me, and he had a roommate who was from a third world country and not accustomed to Western views of table manners, and in this country he discovered egg salad, which he loved. So he would come with to lunch and eat egg salad sandwiches. Now, I have to tell you, I am a super picky eater. I have very strong views about what goes into my mouth, and egg salad will never make it there, trust me. It's real so gross. He ate his egg salad with his mouth open. Nah, nah. So you got a really good view of this mashed up egg salad sandwich. (laughs) And I just couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand meals with him. So I said to my buddy, you know, I don't think I can come for lunch anymore because I just can't put up with that. And he said to me, pray for him. Pray for him. And in praying for him, I found what was missing in me. Love for him love for him in love for the other guy who is not yet the best he can be you can find what you need to put up with him now just to make sure nobody gets confused i'm not talking about uh, a person who beats his wife i'm not supposing that what she ought to do is pray for him and learn to put up with it that's not the issue we're not talking here about putting up with sins We're talking here about putting up with people who got body odor or who um, never remember any kind of politeness in conversation or who can't stop talking about themselves or something along those lines where we don't feel they need to repent of sin. We just feel they need to be put in the backyard next to the dog. (laughs) So that's what this one is. Putting up with people who are a real pain in the butt. That is the spiritual work of mercy. If you think to yourself, we're not having him over for dinner. He's so enormously fat, I don't even know how we'd get him at the table. And besides, he never has a word to say. He just sits there and eats like a pig and looks at his plate. We're not having him for dinner. Guess what? Guess what? You're missing putting up with those people who are a pain in the butt. And guess what? Don't forget, this falls under justice. This is not, you're a hero if you do it. You don't want to hear me say the part about hell again, do you? No, (laughs) no. This is obligatory. All the works of mercy are obligatory. They're matters of justice. Why? Remember pride. Everything is gift, every good you've got, including not being a pain in the butt to other people, in case you really aren't a pain in the butt to other people. Every good thing you've got is a gift and it's meant to be given back. And that's obligatory. Love is obligatory. And then there's fraternal correction. Now, this is a real tough one. Um, It's telling the truth that hurts to other people. Now, you think to yourself, there's nothing I like to do better. And that might be true in some circumstances, but it's not going to be true in the circumstances we're talking about here. So, I once had a small contingent from Notre Dame come to see me, from the Notre Dame Philosophy Department, came to see me. And they said about a person who worked at Notre Dame, who was dear to me, a friend of mine. They said to me, Ah... He stinks, and it's not ordinary body odor. It's sort of like what you smell when you've gone on vacation and the electricity went out and you open the freezer when you come home, and that meat has been in there rotting for a month. That's what he smells like. Now, you know, they didn't actually have to tell me this. I knew it myself because we had him for uh, Thanksgiving dinner every year, and when he left, it took us about two weeks to clean out the house. How a person, how a human being gets himself in that condition, I can't tell you, but that was the condition of this human being. So the Notre Dame contingent came to me to say he stinks, and he's in the lunchroom every day, and he's driving us all nuts. We think you, Eleanor, should talk to him. (laughs) I say to myself, you think I, Eleanor, should talk to him? How about this for a suggestion? You guys grow a little backbone, you talk to him. Fraternal correction is an obligation. It's when somebody who is near to you, somebody in your orbit, somebody in your community, really needs to correct course. But it would hurt them and be a little risky or a lot risky for you to tell them. It is an obligation for you to tell them. them? I didn't tell them. I didn't tell the Notre Dame guys either. I just declined. I declined their invitation to talk to my friend. (laughs) Left it up to them to figure out what the next step was. I figured that would be hint enough. So here's the constraint on this idea. You can't be running around knocking on doors telling people their sins. (laughs) Good morning. I'm just here to tell you that I feel that the way you deal with your children is really inappropriate. (laughs) That's, That's... See, the, the basic governing idea for everything is love. And love is not a matter of you notching your holster with little notches that say how spiritually wonderful and advanced you are. It's a matter of seeing the other guy flourish in beauty of holiness. And if you are foolish in the way you engage in spiritual correction, you'll make them worse, you won't make them better. So everything about fraternal correction has got to be governed by love and you have to think how could I go about helping this person so that it works so the other guy isn't just offended, obstinate, explosive in wrath so I don't make him worse so I help make him better. How can I do this so I help make him better? In the case of my friend who stank, nothing was going to fix that it was some very deep problem and it was the least of his very deep problems. And uh, he died young out of his very deep problems and I was glad to produce at least a little bit of family and a little bit of rest for him while he lived. So that's that's the thing to remember. Making another person worse is a sin against charity. And I won't tell you the part about hell again. I won't tell you. But But you know, the, I joke I probably shouldn't joke about that part about the deadly sins but the beauty of the idea of a deadly sin is it helps you see this is serious you are called to love and love is not vapid limp lame pastel it's wild and it's beautiful and you are called to it and if you miss it that will be a very big loss a very big loss that's the point. So that's the first constraint on fraternal correction. You've got to really figure out how to do this so the other guy will be better. And then here's another constraint. You have to be sure you're right. Do you know what I mean? If you're going to correct the other guy for his adultery and he doesn't have any, then you've got either gossip or detraction. One of those two. Remember those? Those were on the daughters of the sins, the deadly sins. So you've got to be sure you're right. But then here's the last and bottom line about this. It doesn't matter what it costs you. It's obligatory. So at a certain point in this country, the doctor, the personal doctor of Mao Tse wrote a biography of Mao Tse And in this biography, he shows what a monster Mao was and how much he, the doctor, had to put up with what a monster Mao was because he was in daily contact with Mao, who wanted his doctor close to him. And he was Mao's doctor for a very long time. So in this book, he shows himself as a victim and Mao as a monster. And my thought was, no, Buster, you're the monster. You were there all the time, every day. When did you ever say a word to him? And of course, I know what the doctor would have said. He would have said, well, saying a word of correction to Mao could have put my life in danger. And here's the bottom line, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The great Christian thinker Augustine says, if you see another guy sin and you are unwilling to engage in fraternal correction because you're worried about yourself, then whatever his sin is, yours is worse. So this is a severe, it's a severe requirement. On a Christian life it's a severe requirement reminding you of the constraints you can't be a busybody you have to do this in a way that you feel pretty sure it's going to help the other guy be better and if it doesn't help him be better and makes him worse then you have to shut up but if you can see any way to help him be better and you don't because you think he's going to be mad at you for this then we have a serious sin that's that's the idea and that brings me to the last one forgiving trespasses. Forgiveness is love directed at somebody who's done you an injury or an injustice. So think about it this way. Well, start with the bad news. Forgiveness is obligatory, there are no There are no PSs. Forgiveness is obligatory, unless he's really a bad guy. It's just obligatory. Forgiveness is obligatory, and there are no exceptions. And to say it's obligatory means that bad line if you don't engage in it. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, this is where I get off the ship. Because if you've got to forgive the the guy who beats you, this stupid line... Forgiveness is obligatory. This stupid law makes you connive at every kind of evil. But then you're forgetting what love is. Love is desiring the good for the other guy. If what you do enables the other guy to keep doing something evil, guess what? You're helping him find his way to hell. That's not loving him. That's what I said about Francesca. If what you're doing enables the other guy to keep doing something that is totally destructive to his soul, you are not loving him. If your son is selling drugs to schoolchildren, you have to love him. And if you love him, you have to forgive him. And if you forgive him, you have to desire what's good for him. And what's good for him is he stops selling drugs to schoolchildren. So maybe what forgiveness requires in that case is calling the police on him and getting him sent to jail. Forgiveness is desiring the true good of the other guy. Not what the other guy likes, but what's really good for him. And that can come with punishment. Forgiveness and punishment are not incompatible. They are not incompatible. Forgiveness is a matter of desiring the good for the bad guy and desiring union with him. You might think, uh-oh, there's the bad thing again. So if he beats me, I have to stay in the house with him and take my chances? No, it's not company. It's union. It's being at one with. You cannot be at one with somebody who hurts you. If he hurts you when you're near him, he has lost his chance at company with you until he can be a different person. He has to go away or you have to go away. Why? Why? Because if you stay in company with somebody where he will hurt you if you're there, then what do we know? You're making him worse by staying there. Making him worse by staying There's no love in making another human being further from God and closer to hell. There is no love in that. Love is helping him be the best he can be. So you may need to say to him, go away. But this will be saying, go away. Go away and I hope you reform. I hope you become a good person. I hope we can sing together in heaven. But for right now you have to go away. And here's the interesting thing to notice. You can forgive even an unrepentant wrongdoer. You can even forgive dead people. Why? Well, suppose you had a truly horrific father. Something special in the way of evil. And he's dead now you can say I wish in his dying he might have found the Lord I wish that he would have had a deathbed repentance so our Lord can take him to heaven I wish someday I may be able to sing with him in heaven so here's a piece of popular culture I do have in the Star Wars movie there's the bad guy Darth Vader And in one of those Star Wars movies, he dies. Did you see the part where he dies? He dies. And as he's dying, his son takes his helmet off. And there he is, grotesque, deformed, disfigured. And as he's dying, he becomes the silver-haired, handsome statesman he always had it in him to be. If at that point his son would have thought to himself, Ah,
1: crap!
0: I wish he'd stayed ugly. It would have served him right. I hate it. How does he get away with it in his dying moment? How does he win in his dying moment? Everything he gave his whole life to ruin. Now you don't have forgiveness. If you can say, I am glad. I am so glad for you, Father. So glad for you. Now we have forgiveness. And you can have that attitude even for someone who's dead. You can have it for the unrepentant wrongdoers too the really bad guy who's still doing all the bad things that are so hurtful, you can have this attitude for him, too. You can think, if you, like Darth Vader in the movie, ever pulled your helmet off and your disfigured face bloomed into something beautiful, I would be glad. The alternative is to think, I hope that never happens. I hope you rot in hell forever. That's not compatible with love. And guess what? Forgiveness is obligatory. It's obligatory. It's obligatory. So, here's a last point and then we'll be done because I'm a little over. Forgiveness and reconciliation can come apart. And here's why they can come apart. Forgiveness is completely in your own control. Whether you have these desires for another human being or not, that's up to you, totally up to you. But whether you can be reconciled with the wrongdoer is not totally up to you because reconciliation is mutual. So if my brother does horrible things and they're very hard to forgive him for, but I do, and then I think, let's be reconciled, that last part's not up to me. Because if he hates me and won't have anything to do with me, it doesn't matter what I desire. I won't get what I desire. Think about it like this. Forgiveness is love shown to somebody who's hurt you and you can love unrequitedly. Because you love somebody, it doesn't mean they're going to love you back. And you can forgive, you might say, unrequitedly too. So reconciliation depends on the condition of the wrongdoer. And here's why I bring this up. Because a wrongdoer can do something so bad that it breaks a relationship and breaks it permanently. It may be that it is morally obligatory to forgive, but morally impermissible to reconcile. So here's, here, here's a horrible case, but it will show you right what I mean. Suppose you're the mother of a small child and there's a priest whom you have trusted for forever and have it trusted this child with also, and then you discover the horrible abuse that's taken place. Forgiveness is obligatory. If you have forgiveness, you wish for this character that he would be stricken in conscience, deeply repentant, do everything in his power to make the world a better place. That's what you wish for him. And you wish that one day together you might sing in heaven. But reconciliation would be allowing him to come back to dinner at your house. And that you might not be able to do ever because the trauma he has inflicted on you and on this child will be opened up and revisited every time he shows up at the dinner table again. By his evil action, he may have broken relationship such that it can be restored in heaven, but not as it was before in this lifetime. So it's important to see that forgiveness is always obligatory because it is a kind of love, a desire for good, a desire for union. But there may be, there may be circumstances where the evil done breaks a relationship past mending in this life. And if that's the case, then you can forgive, but you don't have to reconcile because you forgive. So we have to take evil seriously. Nothing about saying love is obligatory, nothing about saying forgiveness is obligatory, means that evil doesn't have to be taken very seriously and dealt with also sternly. It does. But nonetheless, it is open to us to love and to forgive. So let's just finish with the lists. Here's the list of the spiritual works of mercy. Instructing the ignorant, counseling the doubtful, comforting the sorrowful, fraternal correction, forgiving trespasses, bearing with those who are a pain in the butt, and praying for others. And here's the corporal works of mercy, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick, helping the prisoners, burying the dead. And they are all matters of justice. And as justice, as justice, they are all part of the seven cardinal virtues. Charity, hope, faith, wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. So there you go. You got the list and you see how they work and we're done for this time.
1: Thank you, Doctor.